This is Adam Hill, the minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ. I always tell our church family, read your Bible. You'll be a better Christian. My prayer is that this Bible-based sermon will help you follow Christ more faithfully. Let's learn together as we study the Word today. Today, we're going to continue our study through Revelation. It's called Agnes Dei, which means Lamb of God. Um, And so we're going to be looking at that. And as you can see, I've enlisted some help today. Um, I've enlisted Dr. Greg Stevenson. Now, uh, Greg and his family, his wife Sally, and his three children, Nicholas, Alexandra, and Isabella, um, who are all elsewhere, they're in in Arkansas. So they're, they're at college. Um, but they've been with our church for uh, like two decades. Um, and Greg is one of the smartest and most humble people I know. He teaches New Testament here on campus at Rochester University. And he happens to have written an incredible book on Revelation called A Slaughtered Lamb. We're studying through that book in one of our uh, Bible classes, by the way. Uh, so I'm thankful to have our residential expert here with me today. And you'll see and hear Greg again throughout our study. Uh, But Greg, I'm going to ask you, if you will, to provide our reading today from Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father to him, serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, today we ask that you would please help us to see Jesus more clearly. God, that you have shown us what it means to bear faithful witness to you. And it looks like Christ. By the power of your spirit, I pray that you reveal to us, you open our eyes so that we may see Jesus more clearly. That we may follow in his steps more faithfully. That we may serve more diligently. That we may surrender completely. God, we ask today that you would speak. For your children are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. So last week we saw in chapter 1 that John takes great pains to present the image of Jesus. Now this was no accident. John spends a lot of time showing us Jesus because he's making you acutely aware that the whole book is about Jesus revealed. If you remember, Jesus is described in chapter 1 and verse 5 as the faithful witness. Greg just read it. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. This is critical to what we're going to be studying today as we look at chapters 2 and 3. And we learn from the letters that Jesus sends seven churches. The churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, before we jump into the purpose, 
I want to take a moment to answer a question that I was asked. Why these seven churches? What's significant about these seven churches? Well, first, proximity. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and so it makes sense that he would write a word from God to be circulated in the region that's nearest to him, as he's within 40 miles of Ephesus. As a matter of fact, the letters are written in such an order that a letter carrier coming from Patmos would first... would, would come to Ephesus first, and then there's a well-known trade route throughout the region that would pass through these cities in the order that they're presented. Second, transparency. These are open letters, meaning that each letter would be read at every church along the way. So just like we now read all seven letters, so every church would hear all seven letters. And so this means that the contents would not simply be for that church alone, but for every church that heard it. And in truth, there are some people who see that, that there are seven letters is significant in itself. Now, already we've seen the book use the number seven a dozen times. You're, you're free to go and count them to check my math. But up to this point, we've got a dozen times. It seems to be significant. Symbolically, the number seven was used to communicate perfection, completeness. And so perhaps by choosing seven churches, John is actually communicating to the whole church, to every church. And so in fact, as we read these letters today, much in the same way we read Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus or Galatia, and apply it. The best principle for interpretation and application of these letters might be, if the shoe fits, wear it. The third thing about why these seven churches is context. Each of these letters connects in some way to the community that it's sent to. Often recalling the history and the cultural uh, reputation of the city to which it's addressed. And this is the foil that John uses to address them and us. In some ways, This is a great reminder to us that the church can take on the persona of the culture around it. And we must be careful how we allow the world around us to shape us. What we will see moving forward is that according to these letters, God regards the church as a guardian. A guardian of, a guardian over, a guardian within the culture around it. Regardless of the perceived influence of the church within that culture. Now I want to make sure you heard me say that, Kirk. I got to make sure we get it, right? God sees the church as a guardian of, within, and over culture. Even if the church is not perceived as influential in that culture. Think, think of it this way. Think of, think of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That in the midst of a wicked, wicked cities that did not honor God, God was willing to spare those cities on the count of just a few righteous people within them. That God has placed a responsibility within his people. Now, in light of that, Think of how culturally compromised much of the North American church has become. 
That prognosis is frightening. In each of these letters, the primary concern of Jesus is that these churches will join him as faithful witnesses in their present circumstances. Yeah, as Adam mentioned, you know, Revelation is a book that primarily presents Jesus and holds up Jesus as the model of what faithful witness is. And what's happening in these seven letters is, is Jesus is challenging us, each of us, to imitate that faithful witness. And we see that challenge represented pretty significantly throughout these letters. Uh, these seven letters are presented in the book as Jesus composing a message to the churches. You know, even though the book of Revelation is written by John, he presents the letters as coming from the voice of Jesus himself. And in each of these letters, what Jesus does is provide an analysis of the church. Uh, basically, he's a physician sort of diagnosing the health of the church. And in the section of each letter, which is the part we're going to focus on today, where he analyzes the churches, they all begin in exactly the same way. They begin with the words, I know. You know, I know you. Jesus knows these churches and knows them intimately. Now, you might think that being known intimately by God is a good thing. Uh, it certainly seems that way on the surface. But does the thought of Jesus knowing every detail of your life, every intimate thought that comes into your head, does that provide comfort? You know, that can be a frightening thought. Because if Jesus knows us intimately, he knows both the good and the bad. And so in these letters, the analysis in these letters typically unfolds in three parts. First, after he says, I know these things about you, he will begin by praising the church for all of the things that they're doing well. And then after he finishes praising them, he will give them a warning about the things that they're not doing well. And then following that warning, he will give them a command to repent. And what we're going to do is we're going to examine these seven letters by grouping them into three groups uh, as a way of highlighting some of the similarities between the churches and some of the challenges that these churches shared. And the first group that we're going to look at uh, are the letters of Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira. And, and, and just, oh, go ahead. Hold on. Just yes. to be clear, th those are not in order. Yeah. Like we're not going straight down the order. We're grouping them. And so you'll see Ephesus first, and then you're like, I don't know where he got Pergamum from. Well, he got it from verse 12 in chapter 2. Uh, so hold with us. Yeah, if you're, if you're reading in a, in a physical Bible, you may have to jump around a little bit. But we group these three letters together because one of the things that these three churches all share in common is that all of them were dealing with false teachers, but not with the same outcome. So to begin with the letter of Ephesus... And the letter to Ephesus also provides us sort of a good snapshot of this threefold pattern that we see in these letters. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You know, the hallmark of the church of Ephesus in this letter 
is their ability to stay true and resist false teaching. You know, he says they refuse to tolerate wicked people. They test and expose all false prophets, and they do this tirelessly. And he says not only that, but they also hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hates. Well, considering we're told that Jesus hates the practices of the Nicolaitans, it would probably be a good thing for us to know what those were so we could avoid them. Yes. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> Nobody knows who the Nicolaitans were. Um, basically, they are mentioned twice in the book of Revelation, and that's it. And they're only simply mentioned without right. much context. Our best guess uh, from the context of Revelation is that the Nicolaitans were probably similar to many of the other false teachers in this book, and that they were promoting Christian compromise with the Roman culture around them. So at its heart, the church of Ephesus is a church that has resisted compromising their faith and has stood vigilant against false teaching. But not all of the churches have been so successful at that, which brings us to Pergamum and Thyatira. In these two letters, Jesus begins in his customary fashion by praising both churches. Uh, he begins by praising Pergamum for remaining true in a very difficult context, uh, even in a context where one of their members has been killed because of his faithful witness. And he praises Thyatira for their service and their perseverance. In both cases, though, the praise quickly gives way to warning. Because the problem here is that unlike at Ephesus, these churches are tolerating false teachers. So for instance, in the letter to Pergamum, in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then to the church at Thyatira, he says a very similar thing in chapter 2, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. In both of these letters, John describes the false teachers in these churches with symbolic names that are drawn from Israel's history. So to the letter at Pergamum, he refers to the false teachers there as followers of Balaam. You know, Balaam was a, a prophet in the Old Testament who was hired to curse Israel. But through his actions, ultimately, he ended up enticing Israel into idolatry. And in Thyatira, apparently there's a very prominent woman, influential Christian woman, who styles herself a prophetess. Uh, but John gives her the symbolic name of Jezebel the Israelite queen who likewise led the people of Israel into idolatry. Not a lot of people naming their kids Balaam no, or Jezebel. Not much. Yeah, and from the names that he gives them in the descriptions, you know, apparently what these false teachers were doing is they were teaching some kind of Christian doctrine that was leading their fellow Christians into idolatry. Now, you might reasonably wonder, why would any Christian promote idolatry? And why would the members in the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira be tempted into it? Well, part of the issue there is we sometimes tend to think of idolatry as something that was obvious. You know, we think of idolatry as bowing down to an idol or openly worshiping someone or something. What we need to understand, though, is idolatry is something that is insidious. It's sneaky. It's deceptive. 
Idolatry was not always as clear-cut as we tend to think that it might have been. And the cities of Pergamum and Thyatira provide us an excellent example of this. For instance, in a city like Pergamum, the presence of the gods, the Greek gods, was interwoven into every facet of ancient life. You know, if you lived in Pergamum and you wanted to go to the bank to get a loan, guess what? You'd have to go to the temple because the Greeks used their temples as their banks. If you were invited to a birthday party, there's a very good chance that party would be held in one of the banquet rooms that could be rented out from the temples. If you wanted to go to the theater at Pergamum, while you were sitting there in your seat watching the show, the entire time there would be an 18-foot-high altar of Zeus and a temple of Athena towering over you from behind, and in front of you was a temple of Dionysius located right next to the stage. You know, there was nowhere you could go in a city like that and avoid the presence of the gods. And in a context like that, what counts as idolatry and what doesn't wasn't always obvious to see, you know, where you draw that line. For instance, take the god Asclepius. Asclepius was a very prominent deity at Pergamum. And if you're not familiar with him, Asclepius was basically the god of healing and medicine. And so temples of Asclepius basically functioned like ancient equivalent of hospitals. You know, they were medical institutions. And the priests of Asclepius would serve as doctors and priests. And the temple of Asclepius was widely known as one of the most significant and renowned medical institutions in all of the ancient world. You know, so imagine you're a Christian in Pergamum and you have a young child and your young child becomes deathly ill. You've tried all kinds of medicines you can think of. You consulted everybody that you know to consult and your child is not getting any better. And you find yourself at your wits end. But one of the most renowned and famous medical institutions in the world is just down the street. You know, do you take your child to the temple of Asclepius for medical care? Is that idolatry or not? You can imagine how different Christians in Pergamum might answer that question very differently. And these were the kinds of situations that these Christians navigated every day of their lives in that context, trying to, to toe that line between idolatry and not idolatry and faithfulness. Similarly, at Thyatira, that kind of cultural compromise may have taken a specific form. Because another common feature of cities in the ancient Roman world was what were called trade guilds, and these were particularly common at the city of Thyatira. Basically, a trade guild was sort of the ancient equivalent of a union. You know, so if you were a silversmith, you would belong to the silversmith guild. And the purpose of that guild was to protect the interests of all the silversmiths in that city. And there was great pressure to join one of these guilds. So if you were a silversmith and you decided to go it on your own, uh, it likely would not go very well for you. So there was tre tremendous pressure to be part of these guilds. And if you were not part of this guild, you were likely going to lose your livelihood and your family was going to suffer. But on the flip side, joining one of these guilds meant attending meetings where sacrifices and prayers would be offered to the gods. You know, what do you do in a context like that? You know, faithful witness suddenly becomes much more real when it involves a choice between our faith and our family. And so these Christian false teachers in Ephesus, or I mean not in Ephesus, in Pergamum and Thyatira, were teaching essentially that it was okay for Christians to engage in their culture, to engage in certain practices and to accommodate to the culture around them. They believed that you could be a faithful Christian 
and still conform to Roman culture. But John, however, in the book of Revelation, sees it very differently. John says that what these people are teaching is causing his, his Christians to cross that line and compromising their faith. And so letters like these challenge us today to think about our culture and our relationship to our culture. Where do we draw the lines in our culture between what is idolatry and what is not? And they force us to recognize that idolatry in our culture as well may not always be so easy to recognize. The second group of letters goes to two churches who are noteworthy and that they're the only churches who receive no warning or command to repent. And these are the churches at Smyrna and Philadelphia. Okay, these two receive only praise. But looking at what they share in common may help us understand why. It also might be a little surprising. <clears throat> Both of these churches are suffering because of their faithful witness to Christ. In both cities, they are facing persecution. In Smyrna and Philadelphia, the church is, is facing persecution. Now, here's what's happening. The persecution is not coming from Rome primarily, even though much of the book of Revelation has to do with Rome and its persecution. The truth is that these churches, as they're mentioned, he says that their enemy tends to be, and this is his phrase, the synagogue of Satan. Now, what that means is, he means this is coming from synagogues, so Jewish believers, Jewish uh, people who are persecuting Christians. And the way that this would happen sometimes is they would come and report things that Christians were doing, and then the Romans would have to intervene. But the direct opposition seems to be coming from their Jewish counterparts who did not want to be counted among Christians and did not want Christians counted among them. And so John is making sure that, say, these Jewish communities that are persecuting these Christians are aligning themselves with Satan because they oppose the church. A second thing these two churches have in common is that they're both described as weak by worldly standards. He tells the church in Philadelphia that they have little strength. He says, I, 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 I see that you have little strength. That's in verse 8 of chapter 3. He tells the church in Smyrna that he knows their afflictions and their poverty. These churches were small, struggling, weak, financially depleted. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus finds nothing negative to say about them. The reason is that their weakness, in their weakness, they found true strength in their faithful witness to Jesus. And in their poverty, they found the wealth in their faithful witness to Jesus. Jesus tells the church at Sardis in chapter 2 and verse 10, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. I'm sorry, he says that to the church in Smyrna. He calls upon them to resist the temptation of Roman culture, to stand against all forms of opposition, even if doing so results in their death, and God who is faithful will reward them. It's a call 
to faithful witness in the face of all opposition, no matter the cost. And it's a call that these churches have answered. We may not look at them and say, boy, I hope that describes my church. Weak, poor, suffering, and on the ropes. That's not what we tend to look for. That that defines us as unsuccessful. And yet Jesus looks at those two and praises them for their faithful witness. The last two churches that we're going to look at stand in sharp contrast to what Adam just said. You know, in contrast to Smyrna and Philadelphia about whom Jesus had nothing to say. You know, these poor, suffering, weak churches. Jesus has virtually nothing good to say about the churches at Sardis and Laodicea. And what may be perhaps most frightening about that is that it has been argued that these churches at Sardis and Laodicea are the ones that are most reflective of American Christianity. You know, is it accidental that the two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, that are described as the weakest and the most suffering are the only ones that Jesus has only praise for? Whereas the two, two churches of all of the seven that are the most successful and prosperous are the only ones that Jesus can't find hardly anything good to say about. So he begins his address to Sardis in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You know, Sardis was a city that enjoyed great wealth and prosperity. Much of that wealth derived from gold deposits that were found in the local, uh, the nearby Pactolus River. As a result, it was a city that was full of ornate buildings that were beautiful to look at. Uh, it was a city, for instance, that where the uh, largest and most ornate synagogue in the ancient world was discovered, a synagogue that seated nearly a thousand people. And the church at Sardis appears to have shared this prosperity. You know, Jesus says this is a church with a well-known reputation. They have a reputation of life. You know, he's basically saying that based on all outward appearances, based on pretty much every measure of the worldly standards of success, this was a church that was doing well. This was a church that looked strong, wealthy, growing. You know, anybody who looked at this church would be impressed by it. You know, if we sort of translated that into today's context, the church at Sardis would be a church that had booming membership roles, magnificent facilities, extensive community programs, exciting worship services, financial soundness. Their hard-earned reputation was that they were a church that was thriving, a church that was alive. But that's the problem here. You know, the problem here is that the standards of success and the standards of life that dominate the world's value system, whether that be of Roman society or American society, are not the same values as the kingdom of God. So Jesus looks at this church that was so proud of what they had achieved and accomplished, and he says to them, he says basically when other people look at you, they see life. But when I look at you, all I see is a rotting corpse. All I see is death. You know, maybe it's not such a good thing that Jesus knows us intimately. And it doesn't get much better with the church at Laodicea. Laodicea was very similar to Sardis. This was a church that was wealthy, that was comfortable, that was self-reliant. They were no doubt a church that just like Sardis saw themselves as alive and thriving. 
But once again, Jesus sees it differently. In chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, he says to the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And this is one of those places where the English translation fails us a little bit. You know, he says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, the Greek word there that's translated spit is more accurately the word for vomit. I think they tried to tone it down a little bit. And that's what he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, this language of being hot and cold is probably not as it's usually interpreted. Jesus saying that he wishes they were either for or against him. That's what I've always heard. Yeah. That's what I heard. Hot is for me, cold is against me. I wish you were one of those, not kind of, eh. Yeah, so, you know, it's, you know, it's usually preached in, in the sense of saying, you know, it would be better if you were even opposed to me than being lukewarm. Part of that is us reading our understanding of the imagery of hot and cold back into the ancient world. To really understand this language, we need to understand something about the context of the city of Laodicea. For all of its wealth, Laodicea had one major drawback. And that is, its water system was pretty gross. Uh, their water supply was very heavy with lime and silt, making it very disgusting to drink. And so because they didn't have an easy water source nearby, what they had to do was they had to pipe in water through an aqueduct from nearby towns. And one of those towns was the nearby city of Hierapolis, which was about five or six miles away from Laodicea. And Hierapolis was famous for having hot springs. And so they could pipe in hot water from Hierapolis. Also a few miles away was the city of Colossae, which had cold springs. And so they could pipe in cold water from there. Of course, by the time that water eventually made it to Laodicea, it was warm. And so if we think about this language of hot and cold in the context of water, it takes on a different meaning. You know, because hot water has a lot of good uses for it. You know, we use it for cooking, we use it for bathing. And cold water has a lot of good uses for it, you know, particularly, you know, getting a cold drink on a hot day. And so both hot and cold in that context were useful and functional in different ways. But in the ancient world, lukewarm water was essentially viewed as being good for almost nothing. Well, except for one thing. Uh, the one thing they considered lukewarm water good for was to induce vomiting. And so what Jesus is, is, is essentially saying to the church here is, I wish you served a purpose, just like cold and hot water do. But the fact is, you are like lukewarm water that is good for nothing, except to induce vomiting. <laughs> and so since you insist on being lukewarm, I'm going to use you for the only purpose that you're good for, and I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And it doesn't get much better for the church, as he continues on. In verse 17... Jesus then says to the church, you say, <clears throat> you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. You know, the self-confidence of this church is staggering. You know, this church has been so influenced by the culture in which they find themselves, the culture of its city, that it has adopted the city's attitude. For instance, in the year AD 60, which was you know, a few years, maybe even a couple decades before the writing of the book of Revelation, there was a devastating earthquake that hit this area and destroyed much of the city of Laodicea and many of the surrounding towns. It was basically a disaster area. 
So the Roman government stepped in and provided disaster relief. They said to these cities, we will give you the money and the resources you need to rebuild. And as you can imagine, these cities jumped at the offer, except for Laodicea. Laodicea had the nerve to say to Rome, we don't need your money. We have all the money we could possibly use. We have plenty of money. We have plenty of resources. We don't need the government bailout. That's right. You know, we're, was it Ford that didn't take the government That's bailout? Ford yeah, that yeah, didn't take Ford. the government bailout. We're That's good. That's right. Yeah, we can rebuild our own city. We don't need you or anyone else to help us. And the church at Laodicea shares that pride. They don't need anything from anyone. They are comfortable, prosperous, and convinced of their success. But once again, Jesus' evaluation of this church reads a little differently. In the second part of that verse, he says to them, you know, he says, you say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but here's what I see. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, I imagine that's not the church model they were going for. You know, it makes you wonder, how could a church that by all measures was doing so well. They were wealthy, they were prosperous, they were successful to the point that they didn't need help from, any, from anyone. You know, how could a church like that be described as wretched and pitiful in the eyes of Jesus? Well, to answer that, we have to think, how do we suppose they became wealthy and prosperous and successful? You know, they lived in an empire where Rome controlled the entire economy of its empire. And you didn't become wealthy and prosperous in that context without climbing into bed with Rome. You know, this church is wretched and pitiful in Jesus' eyes because in their desire for comfort and success, they have sacrificed faithful witness at the altar of prosperity. All right, so as we can come to the conclusion, and this is a happy place to end. It's kind of a harsh message to end on. <clears throat> the letters to Sardis and Laodicea. But one of the things we notice is that even in these harsh critiques, there's some good news. That even with churches that have gotten this far off track, that have become this compromised, we find out that there's hope. Kenny, I want you to go ahead and bring your team up, and also I'd like the prayer team to come up. You see, Sardis, for all of its reputation of life, is in fact dead. But remember the image of Jesus in Revelation 1. That Jesus also was dead and yet came to life. And Jesus promises this church that if they'll only repent, he can raise them from the dead and restore them to true life. Yes, Laodicea, despite its pride and comfort and wealth, is in fact poor, blind, and naked. But Jesus tells them in 3.18 that this state doesn't have to be permanent. If you will repent, he says, he'll give you, he says, I'll give you gold that'll make you truly rich. I'll give you white clothes that'll, that'll, that'll cover your nakedness. I'll put salve on your eyes and restore your sight. I believe that these letters and these seven letters provide a timely and relevant message for all churches today. They caution us to check ourselves. 
to make sure that we've not bought into the value system of this world. That we've not sacrificed faithfulness in the pursuit of comfort. And that instead we strive in all things to imitate the one whom Revelation calls the faithful witness. So for those of us in churches that look more like Sardis and Laodicea, or that honestly would love to look more like the churches at Sardis and Laodicea, this message is a wake-up call. That if we are to bear faithful witness like Jesus, we must stop pursuing success as the world defines it. And we must start pursuing Jesus. We must stop compromising to fit in. We must stop compromising to get ahead. We must stop compromising to prove ourselves. If we are to bear faithful witness to Jesus, we must remember the great paradox of the gospel. That victory comes through surrender. And that life comes through death. You could have the whole world. The whole world. You could have the whole world, but give me Jesus. And that's enough. Is that enough for us? Is that enough for you? To learn more about Rochester Church of Christ, check out www.rochestercoc.org. There you can find links to other teachings, opportunities to join our family and serve, as well as ways to support our work. It truly is a wonderful time to be the church. I pray that you're blessed. Remember, you are loved and you are chosen.